and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now from MSCI ESG Research. I'm your host, Matt Muscardi. Mike DeCebedo is still on vacation. There's a chance he might never come back. But we do have a cast of regulars today. Rick Marshall, our governance genius. Megan Eastman, our editorial guru. And Bentley Kaplan joining us, the songbird of South African ESG. Today, we got into some good discussion, so we're going to go a bit longer. There are two big stories, one on Vedanta and Zambia's nationalization of their mine, and one on direct listing IPOs, Uh, modern trend. Slack managed to accomplish this recently with some success. We'll wrap up with a couple of quick hits on Deutsche Bank, Vertical Farms, and France Telecom's trial. So let's get at it. Zambia's government basically nationalized Vedanta's Concola copper mine. Um, from a media perspective, it basically looks like uh, it's being framed as a political play by the Zambian government. There's a lot of stakeholders involved. The Chinese government has been mentioned all over the place because they're purchasing in all, all across Africa. But from a company perspective, Vedanta has a history of community relations problems. Um, they rate triple C for us which is the bottom rating. They rank among the worst for water efficiency, which is actually a big deal in a lot of the places where they operate um, since there are community rifts for water access. They've had a number of shutdowns due to protests, um, community protests like in India last year and actually in Zambia previously in 2014. Uh, And it got so bad that there was political pressure uh, on the London Stock Exchange to actually consider delisting the company. So um, I think uh, the first question that I want to start with, is there like a comp that we can show for mining in particular, but in Africa to give some context for this? Uh, so I think, you know, with with all of these mining companies, right, it's, it's a no-brainer that they're going to have conflicts with communities what they're doing is hugely damaging um, and you know generally they don't tend to be based in the same country so there's there's always some sort of political angle um, so in some sense I think there's always a risk of conflict with government and when things get you know a little bit more wild west like they do in Zambia uh, you could end up losing a mine um, and that's what's happened here but it's obviously not the first time it's happened to a mining company so Glencore is a good example they operate you know throughout Africa and they've had a couple of illustrative examples of how things can play out. And, you know, one of them is uh, happening here in South Africa where they got on the wrong side of political winds and were essentially strong armed out of um, a coal mine. Um, at the same time, you know, they are in the, in the DRC and, you know, now there's an investigation into how, you know, how it's dealt with the government there, suggesting that it's, you know, given some some very preferable deals to the government. And, you know, that talks to this question of how how company negotiates with the government to operate in the country, right? So, and I think the there are some terrible things that a mind does. And I think it's more a question of how frequently they go bad, um, you know, and how savvy the, the miner is in terms of uh, managing that political risk. So there's a, there's a corruption angle with all of this. You mentioned how they deal with the government and whether that means buttering people up or offering favorable deals in order to, to get goodwill. But I was also wondering, Bentley, especially in the African context, if you have a company that manages things like, say, water usage and community disputes around water better, 
does that put them in a position of somewhat lesser vulnerability to these kinds of political takeovers or other political hazards? Or is that totally unmanageable? Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think so. So if we, we can't just assume, so the first thing is we can't assume that a company that manages those risks well won't have their mind seized by the government at some point. That feels like a risk you, you can't manage away. So there's always going to be that 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 challenge. Um, I think if I was, you know, if I was an investor in a mining company, the first thing I want to know is how engaged are they with the government? Um, and, you know, what's the contingency plan when the current ministers are kicked out of office and the next ones come in? Because that continuity um, actually tends to be longer than, you know, the term of any mining minister. The community stuff, I feel like, is important, but it's not going to make or break your, your operation. Certainly not a, a complete recipe for success or failure. Which actually leads me to the question. Yeah, unfortunately, which leads me to the question back around political influence and corruption and that sort of thing, because it it seems like that's kind of an obvious risk. If you're trying to limit the political risk, do you then get caught up in other types of political risk by corruption? How common is that? Although I I wonder how much of this, um, because Bentley, I mean, your first point was basically. If a government wants to take over your mind, they can take over your mind, and that's just a risk. It doesn't. You don't have to be a bad actor for that to happen, right? But it's almost like if you're an investor and you're coming in at these companies, particularly mine, but any kind of resource-heavy com- company in a market where this is a, a, a risk, there is a question about who you can blame, right? If Vedanta has been triple C for five years, if not more, right? Like going backwards, this has been a consistent problem for them. So much so that they, they talk about delisting in London, right? Like it's not like the markets in which they operate. They're saying this company's a bad actor. We think they should be delisted. Regardless of that being a potential political play, it's a conversation. And then it, but if a government just takes over a mine and it was a good actor, as an investor, you can say, well, that that government might be a risk. In Vedanta's case, do we think it's the government that's the risk or is it the company that's the risk? Or can you make that discrete a distinction? Is it there too much overlap? I, th- I think it's a bit of it's, it's a it's a bit of both. Um, you know, there's been there's been reports around the Zambian government and I don't think anyone was totally shocked that this happened. Um, at the same time, it did seem like Vedanta, like that that commentator said, was was sort of ripe for it as well. Um, so just a perfect storm, I think, that happened at the at the right time. Although I will, I I will go on record and probably delete the fact that well we said they were triple C, so we can claim it was the company's fault because um, because then we were right. Um, <laughs> second story, uh, uh, a little bit set up here too. Um, the second story is is really a story about direct listing IPOs. Spotify a few uh, last year, a year and a half ago um, ish, uh, became the first. I, it's it's roughly the first major company to direct list uh, an IPO, at least in a long time. It's very rare that it happens, and Spotify decided to take that route. And they basically sold shares direct to investors on the exchange, 
rather than doing much in the way of pre-brokering through Wall Street um, uh, and then listing the shares with um, caveats that they can't be sold short um, and all sorts of lockup periods and things like that. Now, Spotify took heat for their dual-class structure at the time, which is pretty much the norm, at least now, for Silicon Valley listings. We rated Spotify at IPO as double B, which is sort of middle-bottom range, largely because of the dual-class issue. And Slack took the same route. They direct-listed. And it looks like um, Slack we don't have a rating on, but it looks like both companies sort of survived the... um, the Uber level scrutiny of um, the IPO. Uber's IPO arguably went terribly bad. And, and I guess a question um, would be is direct listing sort of a new way to diffuse some of the pressure by sort of taking the glare of eyeballs in the big IPO? It's very under the radar way of kind of listing. Does it take some of that pressure off? Oh, I think it definitely does. Um, I, I think the appeal of direct listing for these companies, though, is similar to the the appeal of dual listing itself. And the, they, these are companies that are that are experimenting with ways of retaining control, retaining independence. Um, you know, establishing themselves as a major player um, in the, in the modern economy, in the future economy. They're they're you know promoting new business models. They talk about. Um, how different their approach is to to business. Um, you know, read read the mission statements of these companies, which are very much focused on uh, changing the world and and doing good things. And then there's the the practical side of it. You know, the the lower cost and the the uh, immediacy of going directly to to the listing. Uh, the costs here are not insignificant for a company of this size. These are these are build companies valued in the billions. And the typical underwriter costs are going to range anywhere from a low of 2% to a high of 8%. So we could be talking about hundreds of millions of dollars saved by going the direct listing route. The, the, although the irony, the, the irony here is that they paid $22 million, Slack paid $22 million to Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and Allen and Company for the direct listing, compared to Uber, which listed a four-time Slack's market cap and paid 106 million to 29 banks for their IPO. Mm. So it's actually the total amounts are not terrible. Yeah. They're not like saving a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I like this job because I learn new things every day because I'm totally uninitiated in uh, in this world. So I mean, when I read this article, I actually had no idea that this is an uncommon thing because it makes a lot of sense to me and maybe that talks to me being a millennial. Um, but just thinking about how people are selling their houses and cars these days. You know, you an intermediary used to be the only way to do it. And now a lot of people are doing it, um, you know, more commonly. And I think that um, a lot of that is because a lot more information is accessible and comparable. You know, you can look at different houses at the same time and see what makes the most sense. And, you know, uh, things are more available. Um, so I suppose my, my question about this is, you know, what what's the value out of Wall Street on these on these companies, you know, is it is it worth the seven percent or whatever they're paying? Well, that's a good question. Right, I think so that's the future like question. Like hiring a realtor, yeah. What's the value of the intermediary? Um, uh, is sort of like the thing to watch, and I guess, I guess direct listing will, will test what the value of the Wall Street intermediary is. Um, also, though, you know, if if you're if you're promoting your company as as being new and creative and innovative, this is a, there's a certain amount of bragging rights associated with direct listing because. 
you're saying, okay, we, we don't need Wall Street. We're just going to list. We're just going to take, you know, with one of the differences, key differences between a, a traditional IPO and a direct listing is that no new shares are issued. When an IPO occurs, there's, you know, the creation of new shares. You have dilution in both cases, but no new shares are created in the uh, direct listing. Typically, you've got existing owners selling to new owners. That's the essence of the, the direct listing model. And so that that really does speak to this whole millennial generation, the, 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 the modern generation. Let's do this. Let's just work it out between us. Which fits kind of the Silicon Valley ideology. I'm surprised actually more of these companies don't direct list in some ways because ideologically it does seem like these are founder-driven startup mentality. Um, uh, you know, uh, most of them are, are totally unprofitable, um, and direct listing sort of fits in this idea of, you know, we don't need Wall Street. We are innovators on our own. We do it our own way. It's, um, but the the risk is still the same, and I wonder how much. How much it, it, do you think these companies sort of get less scrutiny for the risks? I mean, I know in Slack's case, they wouldn't. This they specifically told the CEO to basically be quiet because they were worried what he was going to say, um, because he has a history of saying things that are somewhat controversial, right? So they there was an effort to keep him out of the spotlight prior to the IPO, but that spotlight he. These companies are going to get when they're publicly traded companies. Like it's it's inevitable. I wonder if it obscures some of the risk to investors, rather than actually is a good thing to direct list. Um, I got three quick hits. Uh, and I'm just going to, for the first one, it's basically, it's arguably one of the biggest stories of the week, but there's, I'm not sure there's a ton to say. Deutsche Bank going through their 300th restructure in um, two months. Um, I think they're on their 96th uh, uh, exec CEO and executive staff um, configuration. So uh, Deutsche Bank just axed 18,000 uh, employees are announced they were. There's more details to come. Um, uh, round round the horn, quick thoughts on Deutsche, if any. Megan, we'll start with you. My thought really is that if you're trying to transform your company, you need super talented, engaged employees. And when you lay off a bunch of people, you probably aren't keeping the best, and you're certainly not able to hire in the best. Bentley. Yeah, uh, I mean, things have been sad for a while there. I can't imagine that anyone's been doing a particularly good job, never mind, you know, the last week or so when everyone's worried about losing it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like this is just the, the merry-go-round. This is going to happen again um, for another company soon. But uh, yeah, it seems like everyone who gets fired from one of these companies lands on their feet at some point. So not worried for them long term. Rick? Symptomatic of change in the financial industry. A lot going on there, and this is just a piece of it. Um, uh, quick hit number two. 
Uh, vertical farming. We've talked about this before. Um, uh, there's another, uh, there was a round, a New Jersey vertical farm uh, managed to pull in a hundred million uh, in financing. Um, I, mostly I want to just ask a, a high level question about um, vertical farms, the future or not, Megan. Yeah, but not all of it. Some of the future. Bentley. I really hope so, but I don't see it happening anytime soon. Ooh, a slow, a, a, a hopeful future, but, but not trusting that it is. And Rick? You probably can't use this, but if it, it, if it means I can get fresh ripe tomatoes in Maine in the wintertime, I'm all for <laughs> <laughs> You can definitely use that. I'm all in on tomatoes year-round. Um, <laughs> long tomatoes. Uh and last quick hit, um, uh, we'll, at, we'll end sad. France Telecom going to trial for a series of suicides. Um, uh, the, the company tried to force out employees. I think the quote I saw um, in the lawsuit was moral harassment, quote unquote. Megan, thoughts? I remember this case from years ago, back when I was a telecoms analyst, but it's been playing out for quite a while now. Um, I mean, it, it does speak to some of the difficulties of operating in an environment with strict labor laws, you know, which can be a double-edged sword. But, you know, overall, looking at this, you know, 35 people committed suicide because they were being hassled out of their jobs. They couldn't just be fired. To me, for looking at the company, it's just a real poster child for how not to manage transition. So bad job, France Telecom to Orange. Um, Bentley, what do you think? Any thoughts? Uh, yeah, don't know enough about the case, but what, I mean, that seems like a lot of employees committing suicide, so not good. But, I, you know, I think it does raise the question of, of mental health as well. I mean, can't be the first employees from the company that were managed out. Um, and maybe that's more the, the risk, uh, not necessarily for the company, but for, you know, I suppose all companies in general. Mental health uh, and engagement question. Rick, what do you think? Responsibility for and accountability for the relationship between employees and the company and society is one of the ultimate questions that ESG is all about and that we're constantly looking to, to try and understand better. It's evolving. It has to be dealt with at the country country level, at the company level, and at the investor level. And this is a perfect example of that. That's our show today. Thanks to Megan, Rick, and Bentley for the conversation. I was your host, Matt Muscardi. This is ESG Now from MSCI ESG Research. If you like what you heard, or if you don't, subscribe, rate us. We crave validation. Mike will be back next week, and we'll see you then. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. 
and this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.